This podcast is a TWTT production. Let's enjoy sake, hot or cold. Let's enjoy sake all together with you. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of TWTT, the podcast. In this episode, we'll hear the second part of our conversation with Tamagawa Toji Philip Harper. We pick up that conversation by hearing a little about how the brewery was affected by COVID. Well, I mean, I think everyone was affected by it. I mean, we took a big hit to sales. Um, the, we, we sell uh, a fair amount of sake to bars and restaurants, and that, you know, that was, that was just off the menu for a long time. So that was where we took our biggest hit. Although in the in the first year of the pandemic as well, we had basically zero export sales for about a year, which was pretty challenging too. And in the first year of the pandemic in the summer, uh, I took part in um, uh, a Zoom meeting um, with people from all over the world who who worked. I don't know. Do you, do you know the one I mean? Maybe you took part. I can't remember. Um, but there were people in all different markets and from all different countries talking about basically how appalling their lives were suddenly because, you know, everyone had been selling sake and suddenly you couldn't sell anything anymore. And it was an interesting moment for me because in although the, the sake market overseas has grown so hugely in the last couple of decades, um, you know, compared to, to wine or beer, it's still a really small market. Um, and, and, you know, you, I mean, obviously when I go overseas, a lot of the time I'm talking to people who know about sake already, but Obviously, for most people overseas, sake is like still a, a bit of a mystery and very unfamiliar. And so, you know, it's 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 obvious, you know, that it's it's not it's not easy thing to sell sake overseas. Um, and, and at that stage, in the like in the early maybe in the sort of darkest days of the pandemic, and talking to all those guys overseas, um, you know, and all the work they'd done had suddenly they they sort of had the carpet pulled out from under them. Um, and I, but I, I knew this about these guys, most of these guys anyway, you know, that they, they weren't doing it just because they wanted to make money out of something. They were doing it because they were like in love with sake. They were, they were totally enthused by this stuff and like really determined to, to have meet more people learn about it. Um, and, you know, they, that, at that stage, a lot of, of selling sake overseas previously had been mainly about the restaurant trade. And that was like again, you know, for most people, suddenly their their main source of sales was suddenly gone, and it was like an incredibly hard time for people. Um, but it was obvious that like none of those people were saying, oh, "Well, I'll go find something easier to make some money with." There, but they were all saying, "Well, we, we've got to do it different, but we're going to keep doing it." Um, and one of the way that people did, did come back from that was was people who had been who hadn't done online sales at all suddenly did a lot of online sales, and people who'd never done retail did retail, which is one of the reasons why. When things started opening up again, I mean, why sake sales have come back so strongly is because um, people were forced to like reach into new segments of the market that they'd never really thought about before, which is obviously you know a great thing and and really really encouraging. You know, from what I'm from what I'm hearing, I mean, I don't have like uh, totally solid figures on this. I think I think the average sake brewery in Japan is still domestic sales are still not back to where where they were before the pandemic, but um we, we are fortunate we're kind of pretty much back to where we were and, and we, we do our accounts in September um we, we're expecting to be well ahead this year again 
And Maki, you've got two bottles of Tamagawa there this evening. Have you have you opened one of them or both of them? What are you drinking right now? Both of them. Both. Well, they were chilled first, and then now it's warming up. Maki san, can you can you tell me what year the uh, Yamaha is? And and the Omacha, I think, is like number one yeast, isn't it? Two thousand twenty-two. Yeah, this is num number one yeast, which is kind of really rare yeast variety that we've been brewing for a few years. So it's not the same omachi that you're used to, Simon, which is like the, the standard one that we make is number nine yeast. Uh -huh. um, and the one, the one that Maki has there is the um, is the limited edition that we made with uh, number one yeast last week. That's what I read at the store and I had to get it. Yeah. Oh, how different are they then? Is there a huge difference between the two? Well, I mean, I expect like uh, most of the people listening probably know already that I mean, say so, like, the, these are the the association yeast, um, and number one came out in 1904, um, and then you know um, halfway through, in, they they stopped selling a lot of the early ones. So the, the 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 youngest number that you can now buy normally is number six, and all the ones before that have been off the market. So so that that number one yeast has been like off, hasn't been on general sale for almost a century now, and. Uh, you, you kind of, you know, there are all these. I mean, when when I started learning about this, people would say stuff like that, like the yeast changed, or or it, it started making sake that smelled like grains, or it was too sour, or you hear all these horror stories about them. So when I started brewing with it, I was expecting like really dramatic stuff to happen, and I was going in right prepared for the worst. And we made the the yeast starter, and the yeast starter was like great and and smelled great and and did all the right things, and I thought. Okay, so that's all pretty normal. So maybe we're going to have like a really traumatic ride when we get to the main fermentation stage. And we got to the main fermentation stage and it was like really normal and the sake that came out was really good. So it was like really odd. I mean, I, 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 I'm I totally baffled as to why they stopped selling this stuff. Because in the, the, the most obvious reason to for a, a yeast to go out of circulation is, is it doesn't make enough alcohol because basically alcohol is money and brewery owners are keen on that stuff. Um, so if you had a, a, a yeast with a low alcohol yield, I can e easily see how that would instantly be replaced by yeasts which give you a higher alcohol yield. But that stuff also has a really good alcohol yield. So, so I'm utterly baffled. And I mean, I, I've asked the people at the, uh, um, the Brewers Association of Japan a couple of times if they can tell me why it was discontinued. Um, and they either can't or they won't. So I don't know. So what was the inspiration for using that yeast then? Um, well, about uh, how long ago? About 10 years ago now, um, we were we were offered a chance to brew with um, Goriki rice from Tottori Prefecture, um, which very rarely gets away from Tottori Prefecture. And so we had a chance to brew with this rice. And because about 40% of all the sake that we made is made without adding yeast, it's like totally ambient. Um, so it's like really rare for me to get a chance to, to try and brew with a new yeast. And so when we got hold of this uh, Goriki rice, I thought, okay, well, I want to, I want to brew with a, a new rice variety, a yeast variety for a for a change. Um, and I was talking to this guy from the uh, the National Research Institute of Brewing, um, and he was doing research into into wild yeast, and he'd come to our brewery because he was interested in stuff that was growing in our brewery. Um, and because he's a yeast specialist, I got chatting to him, and I was saying, you know, we, we've got this Goriki Goriki rice, and I. I'm going to use one of the, the now discontinued yeast varieties. And I was thinking at that stage of number eight, which a couple of friends of mine have used with very interesting results. 
And this guy said, you know, the um, yeah, probably uh, number one is the strongest fermenter. So I thought, okay, let's do number one. And um, it actually took some persuasion to to let them to to make them give it to me in the, for the first couple of years, but they they got used to it now. And so yeah, the last few years, every year we we and each year we like we do something different with it. We change the brewing protocol or the rice variety. And, We've been playing around with it, but it's, it's just my guys love it. It's really easy to brew with. We've never had any problems problems with it whatsoever. Are there any other breweries using yeast number one currently? Um, there was. Um, I don't know if they're doing it currently. So, well, the 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 origin of this yeast was um, Sakura Masamune in uh, in uh, Nada, um, and they have sort of uh, limited edition products that they do, obviously. Um, there's a brewery in Nagano that, that did a kind of series of products with different yeasts a while ago, and they used one of those with number one. I'm not sure if they're still doing that. Um, Suzuki-san at Podobuki, he, he did um, a whole bunch of sakes using the discontinued yeast varieties, including number one last year or the year before. And your your guest on this series, uh, Okura-san in Nara, um, he started doing it as well. Now, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure he he started it because he drank ours, but I haven't actually managed to catch up with him and beat the truth out of him yet. Good old Okura-san. That was a fun session, Julian, wasn't it? <laughs> That's one for the books. One for the books. Yeah. If you want to drink with him, doing it by Zoom is actually not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> the in-person version is fun too, but... I've, I've, I've done both. <laughs> yeah. Maki, I think you had some some questions about moving forward and I don't know whether we've covered them all yet I do I I do I want to hear what our visionary would say about the new generation in Japan both brewers and drinkers younger people are drinking less and less in general and um, sake in particular so I'm wondering if you have any hopes or expectations for younger generations well I mean it's obviously um, as, as you say I mean like uh, not just in Japan I mean like my Nieces and nephews um, in the UK, despite the best efforts of their parents, drink almost nothing. Um, so, you know, in it, which students who don't drink, I mean, who knew that was possible? And so there's obviously a whole new whole new generation growing up where, where you know, there are other options and other ideas. And so, um, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a difficult time for the market as a whole, I think. Um, it, it's 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 very it's very mixed here. I mean, as you as you know, I mean, over, the overall sales figure of the industry are sadly still have been in decline since about the time I was born. Um, and although the sort of rate of decline has slowed, it still hasn't. We're not we're not going up. Um, and there, you know, there are there are star breweries um, which like are incredibly successful um, and have grown enormously, but. Um, if you sort of like uh, do a, a, a random numeral selection of breweries in Japan, then things are still pretty hard for all of them. One of the reasons being that, that it's hard to get young people to, to drink more sake. Um, like when I when I joined this brewery 17 years ago, I mean, I mean that was the industry I knew. I mean, although in a, like you guys, I mean, I I think sake is great. I'm like, it's delicious, and I've loved it for 30 years. But the in the entire time, the sake industry has not managed to explain that to enough of the population for sales to increase. So it seems seems to me that that basically we're doing something wrong is kind of the only answer to that. Um, you know, I mean, I'm a I'm a working brewer, so we we have to sell stuff to pay the rent. Um, and so you know, we had to make our own decisions about what to do 17 years ago, 
to get young people or old people or Japanese people or non-Japanese people or whatever to, to, to get them on board. Um, I mean, I mean, our, again, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, our, our take is, it's very simple in a lot of ways because um, we just make what we think what tastes good. Um, and I mean, it, it scores really badly in competitions. Um, and, you know, we, we, we've all come to terms with that and kind of, uh, you know, we, 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 we leave that to other people who want to do that kind of brewing and we, we do our own thing. We're, we're fortunate in that, in that, you know, we, we, we're, we're pottering on doing our own thing and enough people are on board for it to be working so far. Um, so, you know, I mean, the, the, I think the, the conversation is different if you're talking about strategies for the industry as a whole than for individual breweries. I mean, uh, uh, at the moment of, of all the alcoholic drinks to the drunk in Japan, less than 5% is sake, which is like pretty pathetic for something that's supposed to be the national drink. Um, and, you know, the Japanese population is shrinking. So, you know, they, there, are, there are hard times to come still without a shadow of doubt. If you think of the 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 brew, the industry as a whole, the market as a whole. But again, you know, I mean, if you if you look at the really big brewers, I mean, those we we brew uh, two hundred days a year, and the really big breweries, if they got serious about it, they could brew the same amount of sake that we make in two hundred days uh, before the tea break of the first morning. Um, so you know, I mean, the, if 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 those if those guys took a ten percent hit, then you know that everyone else could could double their production to fill that gap theoretically. So. It seems to me that there are there, there are things that that could be done to to boost domestic consumption. I mean, it seems to me that the national drink that are having ten percent of market share shouldn't be an impossible dream. Um, and you know, if we did that, then then though uh, though as a uh, literature student, I'm not very good at maths, but it seems to me that we'd instantly have double the domestic sales that we do have now, and everyone on average would be making twice as much sake, which I think. It would make a lot of people in the industry really happy. And I mean, the other, the other, it, the, the domestic population is dropping, but obviously, you know, Saki has only just started going overseas, where there is obviously a colossal untapped market. So, um, the, you know, the recent growth in, in, in exports is obviously greatly to be uh, overjoyed with. But again, you know, you still, only about 5% of all the Saki that's made here goes overseas, which is like, Again, you know, compared to the ratio of Australian wine or French wine or Italian wine going overseas, it's like it's barely started at all. So, um, yeah, times are still, by and large, I think, pretty tough for sake breweries at the moment. But there's a whole bunch of places that, that we could and ought to be going. Well, what what would make young people drink more sake? Okay, so that mean that so so how do how do we answer that question? Um, and it, in a sense, you know, we we were we were kind of starting from that point 17 years ago. We, we, we knew that the existing market was no longer sufficient for the company to survive. So we were going in, into entirely new markets. And we weren't thinking specifically, how are we going to make young people drink our sake? But um, we had to think of a way to, to persuade people to, to drink sake that, in, in, that, that buy sake in specialist retailers or go out drinking midaka or whatever. And I mean, I, I've already told you some of the ways that we thought of, of you know, developing new products, like different ways of drinking this stuff, Different seasonal ways of drinking it, different food pairings, you know, different presentations of rice varieties and stuff. Uh, we have all this like wild yeast, yeast brewing that we do again, which is something that not many other breweries do. And, I mean, we weren't specifically thinking about young people, but it was we were thinking about a, for us a completely untapped market. And so, 
mean, there are there are two ways that this can go. I mean, one way is is that, that young people are all going to stop drinking all alcoholic drinks, in which case we're we're all doomed. And um, the other way is is that some of them will and some of them won't. In that case, you know, we we obviously got to persuade them that um, when they they're going out for a drink, that sake is a good thing to be drinking. I think like it, a lot of these conversations have been going on over the years. Like people have said to me over and over. One of the reasons that people don't think sake anymore is, is that the level of alcohol is too high. And but again, you know, it seems to me if that was the case, then then why would why would spirits be so successful? And you know, like like I mean, Australian wine, that stuff is like about the same alcohol strength as, as sake, and you guys seem to think that's okay. And I mean, there's like the recent thing that's been for for like a, like higher level uh, short two drinks, too high drinks and stuff. So I mean. I, you know, it's, I think the the development of lower alcohol sake production stuff. I think that's great. I think I think anything that it expands the market and and opens the door to more people come in is great. But but I'm not convinced that that that's that's really the only reason that that, that sake has been has had such a hard time over the years. I mean, we make a lot of like quite punchy um, high alcohol genshu sake. And, you know, we have a whole bunch of devoted customers who really like that stuff i mean they they, they don't want to drink a sake that's like 13 percent alcohol they they want something big and you know i mean like there are, there are days when i think that stuff is great and there are days when i want something that's you know lighter and quieter i so i think there are different market segments does that mean we can expect like a, a tamagawa sake in a slim can infused with yuzu coming soon or is um probably not <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't go that far we 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 I mean, we're not currently doing it at the moment. We we had a we had a, an eight point eight percent alcohol version of Time Machine, which was excellent. The current the current iteration is it goes out at eleven and a half percent, and we have a we have a pasteurized Yamaha that's in the twelve percent range. So it's not it's not all like big high alcohol stuff, you know. Um, and, and I mean, because we have those like big punchy Genshu sakes and people, so they they can stand there. So a lot of people think about Tamaga, think about those things, but. We really like the quieter things that are pasteurized and diluted, and I, I believe with all my heart that 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 really should be the 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 core part of the sake market is is like pasteurized stuff that's like settled and you can you can store it at room temperature and drink it whatever temperature you like. I think I think that should be the 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 heart of the game as it was when when sake ruled the world in Japan. You know when it when it was doing great, um, it was stuff that you could store at room temperature and open it and have a bottle on the go in your kitchen for a week and it was still good to go back to. And that's one of the reasons why it was so popular then. And one of the reasons now is become a kind of, like there is a kind of niche market where it looks really bubbly and exciting, but because it, it all has almost all the sake in that group, you have to have it in the fridge and you have to drink it quickly. You know, that's that's obviously not a good strategy for reaching a really wide market. Yeah. It's, a, it's a good strategy for working with people who work with specialist retailers, but for the wider market, see, for, for practical reasons, that's like kind of limited strategy. We have um, at, at our website, and the, the people who, who run our website for us once a month or a couple of times a year, I've forgotten, once in a while they, they'll roll up and they'll, they'll show us the figures and say, see who's, who's been coming to see us from, from what sites and so on. And every time they come to us, they say it's like, so all, all the customers that they have with Sake websites, they're, they're doing exactly this. They're all desperate to try and attract young people's traffic to their to their site. Um, and basically, it's not working, is what they're saying. But for some reason, apparently, the, we have like a really good section of website traffic for people in their 20s and 30s. And I'm, I, I generally have no idea why this is. I mean, it's, we didn't, we've never sat, sat, sat down to say, Okay, we're gonna like make something that would appeal to young people. 
um, we're, we're really bloody minded about making stuff that we just think is like good to drink. So we kind of um, clung to our belief that if we like it, then there ought to be enough other people out there like it for us to, to survive. Um, and so far, so good. And speaking of the future, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You've been in Japan for 30 years, you've been brewing sake in Japan for 30 years. Have you ever toyed with the idea, given that the amount of, of sake breweries that are opening up overseas these days, have you ever toyed with the idea of brewing overseas? And I would also be very surprised if you haven't been approached by a brewery overseas to come over and, and brew sake. Yeah, I mean, I've been twice if I would go and brew overseas. I mean, one, one, one reason that it's never happened is that my wife is from Osaka and she kind of likes it here, um, and so do I. The the other the other reason is is that I think in like I have great admiration for all the guys making sake overseas. I think once you start making sake overseas, you you start with like such terrifying technical hurdle. I think you know anyone who makes anything drinkable overseas is like doing great stuff. But you know if you're if you're say say if you're a, an American brewer for example, and I mean a lot of the I mean the, I, I'm talking about the the guys who've started recently the the kind of crafty guys the small scale guys. And a lot of those guys are basically from a, a lot of them are from craft beer kind of backgrounds. And so for those guys, I mean, it's like most of them consider it to be really, really important to be brewing with local ingredients and stuff. So if, if that's your if that's your philosophy, then you're not going to be importing Japanese rice to make sake in America. Though, you know, that's an option. And I mean, it has been done. Uh, but, you know, most of those guys, they're going to be making sake with American rice. And I mean, a lot of them um, make sake with uh, Cal Rose, which is the, the eating rice in California. And it's really, really hard to make sake with. It's, you know, it's really hard. You have to do a whole bunch of stuff really, really differently than you would do it in Japan. Um, and so, you know, you, you have, if you're brewing overseas, you obviously have like sourcing rice is incredibly difficult. Equipment is really difficult. The water quality is obviously really, really different. Uh, even, even, you know, like, like basic things that, that to us are like, so, so not like getting your hand on decent sake yeast is so easy here. Uh, and if you're brewing overseas, it, it isn't always, you know. Um, and these like really, really basic problems. I mean, like I mentioned before, when when I started uh, working at this brewery, I, one of the things that I was like really glad that I could do was to go to work with Omachi rice. And that's from a different prefecture. But because of the way rice works, you know, we can bring it in. So, you know, in theoretically, you could you could like um, freight uh, Omachi rice overseas, but obviously incredibly costly thing to do. And so, you know, if, if you're working in Japan, you can work with Omachi rice or Yamadanishiki rice and all these great rice varieties and stuff. Although the, the guys brewing sake overseas, a lot of them seem to be having a lot of fun too. Uh, on balance, if you're going to be doing it, it seems to me you can have the most fun doing it here in Japan. Mm. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that you have been have been approached. Yeah, but well, not for a long time. Everyone has obviously given up on me. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question is a little uh, inviting for a long answer as well. <laughs> I've been thinking about local sushi market. <laughs> That it's probably shrinking everywhere. And yeah. as the people who have been drinking, uh, the generation of people who have been drinking are dying off. I'm wondering what that what that does to that particular product stratum. Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh that is a a brutally good question. Yeah, I mean if if it hadn't been like that, I wouldn't I wouldn't have been here because my boss would have just kept on selling the same sake to the local people. And yeah, I mean, like, like a lot of other breweries, that, that model kind of ran out of track. Yeah, I mean, as, as, as the Japanese population, I mean, it continues to shrink, 
this is going to continue and, and age. So, you know, I mean, a lot of people who drink those products, they're, they're, they're in sort of an older demographic as well. So that's not a problem that's going to go, go away anytime quick. Yeah, I mean, so, so it's kind of hard to see domestically much good news for that segment. On the, on the other hand, I mean, like I'm drinking uh, Miyako Bijin's Kutsushu here. And I mean, like anyone, I think, who, who has drunk a lot of sake in Japan and, and hasn't been totally like sort of hedged off into sort of specialist retailers and stuff. Anyone who's come across the the uh, the stuff that local people drink that's made by made by good brewers and competent brewers knows how excellent it is to drink and what an enormous bargain it is. So so you know I mean it's kind of kind of our philosophy has always been basically that we we, we make a bunch of stuff that we think is good to drink in different directions. Um and and hopefully people will buy them, which is like not 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 very like uh, sexy sexy marketing strategy but it seems to work okay and i mean again it, it's it's a, it's a total mystery to me that that um, we can't do more with these products because they're they're incredibly reasonably priced and and incredibly good to drink kind of partly goes back to i mean the ridiculous conversations that that, that i had when i started drinking where you're taught that the, the good stuff is the cold stuff and the bad stuff is the hot stuff and Kind of as as a kind of subset of that argument, you get this thing where you. I was taught that the the more you polish the rice, the better the sake is. And so if you if you if you ta- taught all those things and you believe all those things, it kind of automatically means that these like the stuff that the local people are drinking must be bad. And I think uh, genuinely, people who come to sake is sort of like from the Ginjo end of things. A lot of people genuinely believe that stuff must be like kind of poison or something. Um, but we all know that I mean the the, the good stuff is like spectacularly. Um, so I mean, it, all it all it needs is for some some um, re- rethinking of of position. And uh, I mean, how could this not stuff not find a delighted overseas market? And there are there are also problems with um, kind of profit margins and stuff because the sake industry has been deflationary for so long that a lot of those products, the, the profit margins on them are, are razor thin, and people don't think, basically don't make any money on them. Anymore. Um, so there's there's work to be done there as well. I wish I had like a, a more cheerful, um, better answer for you. That, but, but I mean, <laughs> anyone who's watching this, not watching this, listening to this, and has never tried anything, if you if you have like a, a favorite brewery, a good brewery, or if you if you're on a trip in Japan somewhere and you can get hold of the okay, the good stuff is like spectacularly good and easy to drink, and and you can like drink it at loads of different temperatures, and it does lots of good stuff. So and anyone who doesn't know about that should, should get busy and find some. So what percentage of, of what your brewery is making is Junmai and what is alcohol added? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, probably, it's probably, probably we're down to about 25% alcohol added now. Um, and when, when I first joined, the, it would have been 97% non-Junmai. Mm. Uh, there was almost no Junmai sake without brewery at all now. But I mean, you know, I mean, I ranted at you often enough that, I mean, I, I like Junmai sake as well, but the, the alcohol hardest stuff is is when it's well made. It's like it's great too, and I love that stuff. And I I genuinely believe that it's a it's a really important tool for the industry to reach out to a, a wider audience. Yeah. Well, I think I think exactly what we're discussing now is is you know it relates to the conversation that we had when you were in Melbourne because I I said I tend to not really drink a lot of Aruten right. in Australia, but when I'm in Japan, there's right. You know, there's there's a lot, there, there's many more options, and the quality. You know, there, there's yep. a lot, there's a lot more, uh, I guess, option of of quality of good quality. So, I suppose when I'm when I'm here, I tend to to sway more towards Junmai. 
But of course, right. when, when I'm over there, there's, you, you know, you've got your good ad- alcohol added sake and then you've got your not so good alcohol added sake, but you've got that whole spectrum there. So you can easily find something that is quite delicious and something that um, you would you would quite happily drink at home, but it's not accessible here. I think I think another factor with that is is because because the the, the pricing pressures on that segment are so intense um, that that people don't make a lot of money out of it. Um, and so when when it comes to exporting stuff, a lot of people would would always choose another product to export rather than their entry level sake because their profit margins are so slim on the entry level sake. Mm-hmm. Right? Like once a year, I get into a big fight with my sales guys about this and saying it's like so ridiculous that we don't we we don't sell more of this great sake because it's too cheap you know so let, let's let's make this great sake at a price where it's worth us selling it but it's kind of it, it's it's these kind of traditional structures of the market so in the local market you, you you can't you can't go and say to the local market here is our entry level sake and we, we make it this way and this way and this way so it costs us way more to make than it did 20 years ago uh, and it tastes great too it's it's just not a conversation you can have because um the 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 understood price for entry level sake is the understood price for entry level sake, and you either make it pay and sell it at that price or you just don't take part in that market. Right? And and also you know I mean a lot, a lot of people a lot of brewers would prefer to work only in Jumai. I think this is absolutely not true for me as well. I mean I love working um with both of these styles and love making that stuff and love drinking it too. So um even in, however awkward it gets to make and sell i don't think we'll stop because we want to drink it there is this sort of linguistic thing where like uh, jimmy is pure rice which is like right. very easy to say and you know in 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 those terms it's philosophically a, a very easy sell uh, exactly like alcohol is, is kind of it is a bit of a weird thing to, to explain but you've got exactly you've got to explain afterwards and, yeah but I mean, I've I flattered myself that I, I've never stopped being an enthusiastic sake consumer. And I mean, so all these conversations to me come back to what what tastes good, and that stuff tastes good. So, so yeah, I'm I'm not going to stop doing it. I mean, the, there there are a whole lot of people say a whole bunch of stuff about it. The only argument that I can find about it that, that against it that makes any sense is, is that currently it's very difficult to make it with domestically produced alcohol. Um, you can do it, but it's like there's not much of that uh, domestically produced brewer's alcohol and it's incredibly expensive so it, it becomes a different price point for 30 years i mean people have been telling me that alcohol added sake is a bad thing um, and for 30 years it's never drunk like a bad thing to me i mean some of it is horrible but some my sake is horrible and as far as i can see at exactly the same ratio uh, adding alcohol has has absolutely no uh, technical connect correlation with how good or bad a sake is so mm-hmm. if you're not drinking alcohol added sake you're basically missing out on a whole bunch of really good sake which is it's your choice but also your loss it seems to me 100 percent. how has your how has your taste changed over the years in what you drink well i mean me and my these two japanese friends that i i mentioned before when we started drinking sake we we were drinking this stuff that nobody in japan at that stage had heard of um called ginjo which was basically i mean it didn't exist in the market in those days and most japanese people had never heard that word um, and we were hanging out at bars where they had that stuff. And so we thought we were incredibly superior because we were drinking that stuff that people didn't know about. And, you know, I was taught that, that um, you know, it's better because you polish the rice further and, and all this stuff. And then, you know, I, I started brewing and drinking more and more and, and found out more and more that that stuff was not true. 
Um, and, you know, way back then, I loved that stuff. And I mean, you know, I was like very excited to drink it. Um, and then, you you know, you in those days, um, the, the market was was much less varied than it was now. And you never found unpasteurized sake on general sale. Um, you know, these places had they had unpasteurized sake. And then, you know, that was like a really exciting moment finding that stuff. Um, and then, you know, you find you find the un, the undiluted stuff as well. And then you go and work in a brewery. And of course, you know, then that, that is a, a whole different level of joy and, and variety waiting for you. And I mean, like with the, the Nama thing and, and the pasteurized and unpasteurized thing, I kind of I think I, I think, Julian, you seem to have read my books at some stage. I think you can you can I think I wrote about that in the second book, maybe that like I, I went round and round this thing. Like when I first discovered unpasteurized, like I thought this stuff is so good. This is like this is like brilliant. This is the only thing. And then a couple of years later, I sort of got into that like really mellow, nutty thing that you get with the pasteurized sake and that kind of like really indescribable depth that you get after you pasteurize stuff and let it settle down. And then I sort of started going back to unpasteurized stuff that was not so young. And I mean, I sort of like went around the block about five times with all the stuff and, and eventually stopped worrying about it and, and realized that it, it's all good. It's just different kinds of good. And I was taught that young sake is better sake. And I mean, I educated myself out of that just like drinking stuff. Um, I just drank a whole bunch of stuff. And my first boss that I've mentioned already several times, I mean, he his sake was indestructible. So in that in that brewery back then, I mean, there were age sake was even rarer then than it was now. But in that brewery, there was like four-year-old stuff and five-year-old stuff and eight-year-old stuff just kicking around everywhere. And I, I discovered pretty quickly that I liked the the older stuff was like more interesting and, and deeper and did more fun things when you played with temperature and food um, than, than the young stuff. So that was kind of how my, my taste developed. I mean, a lot of people have, have said to me, you know, so like the sake that you make, Tamaga, it works at a whole bunch of different temperatures and it lasts really well and it works with a whole bunch of different food. And people say, so why, why did you decide to make that kind of sake? And I never did, actually. I, I just kept on drinking the stuff that tasted good to me. And by a very happy accident, it turns out that the stuff that tastes good to me lasts forever and goes with a whole bunch of food and you can drink it at a whole bunch of temperatures. It's quite, quite a lucky coincidence, really. I, I see you're drinking out of a, an antique cup, is it? Not an antique. It's, uh, it was actually given to me by a brewery owner. And I mean, I've owned it for how long? 15, 20 years. Very pretty. Do you have a particular type of vessel that you like to drink out of? Um, again, I mean, it kind of, it kind of depends on the mood and stuff because we drink a lot of hot sake. I mean, that drinking sake, hot sake over a wine glass is just, just not a thing. So, because you get a glass of alcohol up the nose. So I don't spend much time drinking sake out of wine glass. Um, I have a whole bunch of, uh, sake, and choco in, in different materials. And I mean, in the summer, I mean, I have, I have some, some nice glass ones. So I use those sometimes. Um, I have some nice, uh, pewter ones. Which are, are great. The problem is, is with pewter ones, if you if you have the sake at tamagawa kind of hot sake temperatures, they're too hot to hold. So that that doesn't work with that kind of really, really, really hot sake. But for for, for warm sake or room temperature sake, I love those things as well. I mean, the, a lot of people do drink sake. I mean, out of wine glasses. And one of our, our European importers, I mean, he he says that he he gives sake to people drink out of wine glasses because there is there is so much to process and sake is so much so unfamiliar. But if you give them a sake in a wine glass, then it, it, it's it's a one hurdle is gone and it's familiar. And that I, I really understand that seems a very logical way of approaching it. And if you're interested in hot sake, then obviously wine glasses aren't a thing. Um, and if, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, then choosing the sake you're going to drink that day is really fun. But choosing the cup you're going to drink out of it is obviously is also a huge part of the, the fun for, for 
that's all I'm getting. Philip, you've been brewing for decades now and you've been brewing Tamagawa for, you said, 17 years. So obviously there's no plans to change careers in the future. But if if you hadn't have become a sake brewer, what what would have been your your ideal job? See, I never I never knew career that, that I might do. I mean, I, when I came to Japan, it was teaching English, but I never thought I would spend my life teaching. I, I think when I was 22, I had a, an idea that I would go around the world collecting languages. And uh, I thought that you could learn a language to a, a pretty good level of fluency in about five years. So I thought I would like being in Japan for a few years and learn Japanese and then go somewhere else and learn another language whatever that is or could possibly have been. But that was basically the only vague idea in my head. So I thought I would go around the world. and I didn't go anywhere. I just stopped in Japan. Same. <laughs> so yeah. it seem, seems like a, a, a nomad would have been your path had you have not uh, stumbled across sake brewing. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Who knows? But I mean, you know, um, my wife is from, from uh, Osaka. So that would have been another reason not to go around the world. Well, who knows? Who knows? But uh, yeah, I mean, um, I'm not overqualified to do other stuff. That's for sure. Do you ever sit there and get philosophical and 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 say, you know, you know, think about what could have happened if you hadn't fallen down the sake rabbit hole? And most of the time, I'm too busy either making the stuff or drinking the stuff to worry. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you get. I'm I'm older than you lot, so you know, you get to my time of life. You know, you start thinking about a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's I've got too much going on that I need to think about immediately for me to be very worried about that thing or for it to take up very much of my life, really. Yeah. On that note, we might start to to wrap the session up, but just before we do so, Philip, for those listening that are perhaps um, looking at travelling to Japan and heading um, north in, in Kyoto uh, or are over in Japan and wanting to perhaps visit the brewery, uh, can can they come and and visit you? Do you have a a, a tasting uh, facility there? Uh, do you run tours at all? What's the best time for people to visit? Okay, well we, we we're not set up for tours because there aren't enough of us. Um, but we have a, a tasting room and we we offer free tastings uh, three hundred and sixty four days a year. So unless you come on New Year's Day when we're shut, so you can taste a lot of stuff. Um, and we we on request we show a video of the production process. Um, which I also translated into English a couple of years ago. So you can watch it in Japanese or English as you prefer. Yeah, so so apart from New Year, we're, we're open all year round. And any places near, because you're kind of in a quite remote area, Any are there any uh, any other attractions nearby if people are, are coming to, to visit the brewery? I mean, if you, if you want to come to our brewery and uh, sort of make it part of a Japan trip, then... I would go and stay at uh, Kinosaki Onsen, which is a, a, a lovely old spa town. It's in the next prefecture, but we're right on the border between two prefectures. So I would go and uh, stay in, in, uh, in Kinosaki Onsen, which is this lovely town, and very accessible to us. Yeah, that would that would be my first choice if someone was putting me up. Well, sadly, last year when I was fairly close, I didn't make it. I, we we Robert Yellen and and a few of us went up to Mukai Shuzo. And right, right. <laughs> I, I know that's not too far from you, but but sadly uh, we were we were paying a driver for the day, and and um, we had a, a time uh, you know time limitation, so we couldn't we couldn't do more than the one brewery. But hopefully, uh, if if I'm lucky enough to find myself back in Japan anytime soon, 
I'd love to come up and visit. Our our, our brewery is two minutes walk from the nearest train station. So I mean, it's it's a it's a, a pretty tortuous journey by train. But if you if you like scenery and like trains, then once you've got there, it's a very short walk to the brewery. I would mind a train ride in a minor minor line. If we're drinking on the train, I'm down for that. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, guys, it's been a super fun chat. Um, Maki, Julian, any any final questions before we uh, we finish up? No, it's been fantastic. I just want to thank you, Philip, and I enjoy your sake, and I'm looking forward to your next season. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for having. Me. Yeah, Philip, it's been great having you uh, chat with us on the on the podcast. We're incredibly happy that you uh, accepted our invitation to come and chat with us. And we look forward to speaking to you again sometime and hopefully visiting you at the brewery. And we wish you all the very best uh, for the coming brewing season. And thank you very much again for, for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. And that wraps up the second half of our chat with Philip Harper. We hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation with Philip as much as we enjoyed having it. We'll be back with another episode soon. And until then, a shout out to all our patrons over at Patreon. And of course, thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast. We really appreciate your ongoing support. So until next time, stay safe, be kind and keep enjoying sake. Sonny.